0: Many disputes uh, come from disagreements about authority, right? Who, you know, who said you could, so parents and kids, right? Hey, who, who said you could stay out all night or wh- whatever? There's uh, disputes about authority and, um, or with, with governments, right? You know, who, who gave you permission to park there? Who gave you permission to build that and one of the first times uh, I had a run-in with the, with the uh, authorities. Uh, <laughs> um, actually, it wasn't one of the first times. But it, it was, it was um, so I was, a, I was a senior in high school. And uh, I was just going into our senior year, and we decided we, need, we should have a party to celebrate we're going into our senior year of high school. And so we said, all right, there is a park not far from uh, here. We, I lived in a, you know, we went to a regional school, and this park was right near a lake, and for some reason it had, um, you know, had gates, it had locks, locking it so no one could go and use it. So... Uh, my friends and I said, "Well, this is a great place for a party." So we cut the lock and we went in <laughs> the di- the day before, and we uh, mowed the lawn, we cleaned up all the trash. Uh, it looked a lot better than when we got there. Uh, so we had we were having our party, and about an hour into it, all this, the these three state cruisers just some charging in there with the lights going, and they're like, "Hey, who gave you permission to do this?" I said, "Well, you mean we have to have permission to clean up a park?" Uh, They're like, "No." And good news is, we didn't get arrested. (laughs) Okay, but the bad news was the party was over. All right, they they threw us out. But it was just interesting that you know, as a teenager, like I didn't even have authority to clean up a park. Um, it reminds us that so many times when we think we, you know, we have authority to do something, but there's always someone higher, right? There's always someone that we often have to check in with to make sure that we have that authority. And I bring this up because in our scripture reading, there was a dispute about authority that the official religious authorities of the temple didn't think Jesus had the authority to do what he was doing, but he did because What they didn't recognize was that he was the Messiah. He was the one whom the temple pointed towards. He was the son of God. So he had an authority in himself to both cleanse and to judge the temple. Even if they didn't recognize it, he did. So as we look today, you may have noticed, hopefully, um, you're like, wait a minute. If you were here last week, we skipped over a section. We didn't read chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. And the reason we didn't was because we treated that on Palm Sunday. So in April, we read about Jesus coming into, and this is the context of our scripture, he he came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. That's what Palm Sunday celebrates. And people were waving their palm branches. Uh, Matthew quotes scripture to say that uh, this this fulfills scripture, what Jesus is doing. So the symbolism, the the scriptures all pointed to this one fact that this was the Messiah, that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem as the king, the long-expected king, the long-expected savior. So that's the context of what's going on. And then Jesus raises things up a notch because then he goes into the temple and he clears it of of um, the money changers, of those who are selling things. And this, again... To the people who were there, they would realize, wait, wait, when the Messiah comes, he is supposed to judge and cleanse uh, the whole world, but starting with the nation, but he's also going to come and cleanse and judge the temple. He's going to start with the temple, the place where God and people meet, the place where worship um, is centered. And there's a couple of scriptures that talk about that. For instance, uh, Malachi 3.1 says the Lord will come suddenly to his temple. Uh, Zechariah 14.21 talks about there will no longer be uh, traders, as in commerce traders, in the house of God. So all that Jesus is doing as he clears the temple out has a, huge, a tremendous symbolic significance. And Jesus himself, he quotes some scripture for the reason behind his action. He quotes uh, a combo of uh, Isaiah 56-7 and Jeremiah 7-11, where he says, my house will be a house of prayer. And that's taken from Isaiah 56-7. My house will be a house of prayer, and it says, for all nations, in Mark's gospel. But you have made it a den of thieves or a den of robbers. That's from Jeremiah. Because what was happening was that this market where they would buy and change money so that people could bring and sacrifice to the temple, it was most likely set up in the court of the Gentiles. So if you were a Gentile, but you believed in the God of Israel, this is as far as you could go. You couldn't go any closer to the temple, to the place where God and people met, the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was. This is as far as you could go, and now there's people selling things. There's... um, Yeah, all sorts of commerce going on. So if you were a Gentile, you'd have a lot of trouble praying. You came to this place to worship God, but you're having difficulty because all the stuff that's going around. So instead of the temple courts being a place of worship, a place of prayer for all, again, it was a place to make money, making it difficult to pray. And so those who were in charge of the temple, the temple authorities were ignoring what was the temple, the purpose of the temple. And so when Jesus clears out the temple, it's more than just a reclaiming of the courts for that day too. It's symbolic. It's a a dramatic symbol of God's judgment upon the whole structure, which is supposed to be centered on worship, but now it's being corrupted because Jesus has authority to cleanse and to judge his house. and the clearing of the commerce from the temple, the entry into Jerusalem on the donkey, the children crying out that Jesus is the Messiah, they all point to Jesus' identity, that he is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Son of God who is to come and reestablish pure worship between God and people. And in fact, Matthew 12, 6, if you remember that from a, probably a couple months ago, Jesus says something, is great, something greater than the temple is here. He is the Messiah. He is God's chosen Savior to restore people, to restore that true worship. And what's interesting is in verse 14, so he clears the traders and the, um, you know, the commerce out, and what does he replace it with? Verse 14, it says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. This is a more fitting activity, isn't it, than sales. (laughs) The, The outcasts, right? Those who were sick. So those who, because they're sick, perhaps they're unclean. Jesus invites them into the temple for healing. And he's doing it in the court of the Gentiles too. So the marginalized, those who are outside Israel, now Jesus is inviting. If they want to worship, Jesus is making space for them He cleared out those well-connected money changers, and he's inviting in the sick and teaching and healing. And I say well-connected because you couldn't get a place in the temple on Passover unless you had some connections with the high priest, with those in authority, because everyone wanted that. That was prime commerce uh, right there. And so Jesus, he clears out the well-connected, those connected to the existing authorities, and he replaces them with the sick and with those who needed healing. It's very interesting what's going on here. What a contrast. And the religious authorities in the temple the next day, verse 15 and 17, they are mad. They say, Jesus, you know, he's doing all these things. People are crying out that he's the Messiah, the son of David. So when Jesus returns the next day, the temple authorities, they want to know, hey, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you permission to do this? Right, verse 23 says, when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and says, and says, and they say, excuse me, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? They want to know that question. They want to know the answer, excuse me, to that question. Who gave you the right to do this? Who gave you the permission? And Jesus answers their question about authority with a question of his own he says all right i'll answer your question if you answer my question john's baptism so remember john the baptist he had a ministry where he was baptizing people and saying repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand i am preparing um, the the people of israel for the coming messiah and 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 he did and remember he was the one who pointed towards jesus So he Jesus asked, what is um, you know, this baptism of John, is it from God or is it from people? In other words, whose authority is it? Does did John baptize people by God's authority or just man's authority? Did he take that authority onto his own? And the religious authorities, they, they don't they're not sure how to answer. Because if they say from God, then Jesus is going to say, well, then why didn't you believe him? Because John pointed to Jesus. But if we say people, then the people, they think he is a prophet. They're going to get mad. So I think the safest way, the safest play here is just to say, I don't know. So that's what they did. They say, I don't know. And Jesus says, well, then I'm not going to answer your question about by whose authority I'm doing this. And what's interesting here in this scripture, and you may have missed it, is that Think of this. They are the religious authorities. They are the ones who are in charge of the temple officially. And yet, they don't recognize John's baptism. They don't know if it's from God or from people. They don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They have set up in the temple, the place of worship, commerce, thereby undermining what the temple is for. And they're the authorities? They were like that fig tree. So you might have thought about, hey, what's this thing about Jesus and the fig tree withering? Why is that in there? Because well, that's what the temple authorities are like. They're like that fig tree. They were supposed to bear fruit. But when Jesus came, he found no fruit. No godly fruit. And so they will wither in judgment. Because the Messiah has authority to cleanse and to judge. And as he pronounces judgment on that fig tree, that fig tree withers. So too does he pronounce judgment on those temple authorities. And the temple, as he overturns those tables, he is overturning the commerce that they set up, the system that they set up, because it's corrupt. Now, I'm sure those religious authorities, they probably thought, oh, uh, they conspired with the Roman authorities, and Jesus was killed a few days later, and they probably thought, aha, see, we won. Uh, we killed Jesus. He, he, I guess he wasn't who he said he was. But that's not the rest of the story, is it? No, he rises from the dead to show that he has authority even over death. So as the son of God, as the, as the son of David, he comes and he has authority over the temple. He even has authority over death. Jesus, he is that place of connection. That Jesus is that point of contact where God and people meet. He is the new temple. He fulfills everything that the temple pointed towards forgiveness of sins. That's why sacrifices were done at the temple. Jesus does that in himself. A connection point between God and people. Jesus does that in himself. The old authorities, they've been judged, they'll be destroyed. They're like the withering fig tree. But in Jesus, there is fruitfulness because he has all authority. Now, getting back to that fig tree, the fig tree is not only a negative example of judgment, it's also uh, you know, a negative example of judgment upon the unfruitful. It's also a positive example that anything is possible if we trust in God, right? Because what did the disciples do? When Jesus cursed the fig tree, it withers. The disciples say, wow, that's amazing. How did you do that? And Jesus says, well, if you have faith, you can move mountains so the fig tree is not only a negative example of god's judgment of christ's judgment it's also an ex- a positive example that when we're in line with christ when we understand what he is doing when we recognize his authority in our churches and in our lives mountains are moved amazing things happen because we're in line with god's kingdom and god's kingdom is so much bigger And so much more powerful than anything that we know that when we're walking with Jesus, yeah, miraculous things happen because he has authority and he has the power. That's how Jesus did things. We might think, well, yeah, Jesus, he was the son of God, so he could do that kind of thing. But Jesus himself, as the son of man, he came and because of his close connection with God, because he followed God's will, he saw what the father wanted him to do. And he did it. So, for instance, in John chapter 5, 19, when people come and question Jesus in that gospel, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So Jesus is saying, Oh, you want to know why how I do these things, how I do these miracles? I just do what the Father tells me to do. I'm in such an alignment with God the Father that I just do what he instructs me to do. And for the Father, healing the lepers, healing the blind, the miraculous, it's nothing. He has authority over it all. And that's how we need to understand this as well. This verse 22, it says, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So, Jesus is saying, Oh, this fig tree, that's not a big deal. Because when we're in line with God's will and we understand His authority in our lives and in our places of worship, then we shouldn't be surprised when miraculous things happen. Because when we ask in prayer, when we trust in Him, we are saying, God, I'm in, I want to be in alignment with your will. And if you desire for this mountain to be moved, it's going to be moved. If you desire this mountain to me, well, I'm going to ask God, God, move that mountain. You said you wanted to do it. He can do it. You see, this is where sometimes folks get a little bit confused, where they read this and they're like, okay, ask whatever you ask in prayer. If you don't doubt, you'll have faith. And so they say, all right, I'm going to pray. I want this to happen. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to make sure I don't doubt so God will do what, I'm, what I want. No, you know, the whole context of this isn't this. The whole context of this is, no, we're in line with God's will. So what he wants to do, we want to do. We submit our will to his authority. So we don't have faith in our prayers. We have faith in the one we're praying to. Do do you see the difference there? So we say, God, if you want it, it's going to happen. But let change my heart so that I'm so in line with your authority and your will that, yes, I can. If I see you want to move a mountain, you'll move it. I'm going to pray for that. But it's not faith in our prayer because so many times people approach like, oh, God's not doing what I'm wanting. So I guess I'm not praying right. Well, yes, in a sense of pray that God's will be done in your life. Pray that Jesus would ride into the, the, the courts of your heart and change our hearts. And if there's anything in our hearts that uh, keep us from truly worshiping and truly following God, Jesus would overturn those things and throw them out. Because Jesus has all authority to judge and cleanse every place of worship and every worshiper. That's the main, I think, application we should get from this scripture. Jesus has authority to judge and cleanse. Again, every house of worship and every worshiper. So let's start with every house of worship. That includes Second Baptist Church. You know, I haven't said it in a while, so i got to say it more, and I want you to repeat it. We say, at Second Baptist Church, Christ is first, right? That's one of the things we say a lot. So would you repeat that with me? At Second Baptist Church, Christ is first. So we acknowledge that because this is his church. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's ours, but it's ours because we're only as much as we're following God because he is the head of the church. And we acknowledge that, and we strive to make that a reality in actually how we do things. And one of the reasons we say that, and again, theology always affects practice, is that in 1 Corinthians 3.16, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, he, ta- he tells the church at Corinth, hey, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. That as we gather together, as the body of Christ we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So now it's no longer a place. It's no longer in Israel. The, the place where the Holy Spirit meets with his people is in the gathering of his people. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the presence of God. So again, this is his church. That as we gather, the Holy Spirit is the one who is to guide us. and we too are supposed to be a house of prayer. So if Jesus were to come into our church this morning and we trust that the Holy Spirit is here, that his presence is here, we need to acknowledge that and we do. But what would, his, what, would his, what would Jesus be wanting us to do now? Do we, do we think that way? In other words, when we come to this place, oftentimes we're thinking, all right, What am I going to get out of this today? And yes, you should be expectant that God is going to guide us and encourage us and we're going to experience his presence. But the temple is a place, a house of prayer, a place where we purposefully gather together and say, God, you are worthy. God, there is none higher than you. This is your church. This is your place. This is to be a house of prayer. We're, and, and that's why worship—it's a part of our mission, right? That our mission is to worship God, love people, and grow Christ followers. That's that's our mission. That's when everything comes down to it. Those are the things we do, and that starts with worship. Our mission is to worship God. What that means is we pray, God. We want Your will to be done that this is your church. We want your will. We want your plan. And in fact, we have such faith in his authority and his his power that when we pray to him, we we don't just pray for our needs. We also pray, Lord, we want your will to be done because we know that if you want something to be done, that if we get in line, mountains can be moved. Amazing things can happen. Miracles can happen. But so many times we come with our own agenda instead of opening ourselves up to say, God, this is your place. Do what you will. Jesus has authority to judge and to correct his church. One of the places we see this happening actually is in the book of Revelation in chapter 2. In chapter 2, Jesus is speaking to the seven churches through the prophet John, and it's very interesting. He talks about removing lampstands. He says, uh, this is Revelation chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So this is Jesus talking to the church in Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, excuse me, and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So he's saying, hey, you've done good, and that, you know, um, false teachers, false apostles have come, and you have sort of rejected their teaching. That's a good thing. But then look at what he says next. He says, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you, uh, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus has the authority to remove the lampstands. Every So here's more theology, sorry, but uh, it's, it, it informs everything. When we talk about church there is a church universal. The church universal the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church universal is every person who's truly trusts in Jesus from all time. This church that church will never fail. That church will always that's the bride of Christ. And if you read the re- end of Revelation that church comes but local churches, right? The universal church is expressed through local church bodies like us. They have a life cycle. They wax and they wane, and sometimes when when a local church is not following Jesus, he will remove their lampstand. New England is littered with empty buildings that used to house churches. Lampstands have been removed. Mars Hill Church it was a thriving church, seemingly a church we'd all want to be. In Seattle, Washington, One of the, a difficult place to minister, right? Just like New England. 15,000 people in attendance. The, they were the go-to church about 10, 15 years ago. Hey, you want to do church right? You want to be successful? Be like them. They no longer exist. They became so pastor-centric and that pastor abused his flocks, Jesus removed their lampstand. Even though, again, 15 years ago, oh, they would be, Mars Hill, they're the place to be. God can remove lampstands. And again, that's a warning, but the good news is the church universal will always remain because Jesus has authority over that. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, so how does a church get its lampstand removed? And, and you might be thinking, yeah, so get purify the church. Get all the sinful stuff out. But what happened in, to the church in Ephesus? It's not that it, actually Jesus commends them. Hey, you know, you don't tolerate evil, you, all this. But what I have against you is you left your first love. Is that love of God and love of people. Like, that's the test. Read 1 Corinthians 13. Jesus says they'll know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. Oftentimes, our love for God grows cold. That he is the authority, but he also is the one that we are to love above all things. And oftentimes, the, the problem isn't doing this or that. Is Sometimes we approach church as if we're like the health department. You know, like we have a, a list of things. Oh, do you do this? No. Okay, check. No. Okay, look, you, you know, you failed your inspection. Where Jesus, his, his measurement has always been, do you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and do you love people as yourself? So this church in Ephesus, their lampstand was being warned to be removed, not not because they didn't do the right checklist, but because their love for God was growing cold. So if Jesus were to come into our church and he he and, and walk through these aisles, right, he can see into our hearts. And I know many times he would look into my heart and he would say, he wouldn't see a, a burning love for God. He'd see, oh, I've got to do this and this and this. And not an anxiously awaiting the Messiah to arrive and do amazing things among us. But love was growing, can grow cold that way. So what do we do? First, we have to acknowledge Jesus is our authority. That yes, we have this idea, Christ is first at Second Baptist, and that's good. But every one of us, as we come and gather, let's start to mentally acknowledge. As we we enter together, whether it's here or in a small group or wherever we gather as a church, that we start to acknowledge, Jesus, you're number one here that Jesus, you have authority here. Jesus, have your way with our gathering. And see what he does. See what mountains are moved. So many times we come with an agenda, our own agenda, and therefore we are not ready to receive what God has. But let's also look at Jesus has authority to judge and cleanse our lives. Because when Paul writes to the church in Corinth in First Corinthians three sixteen, he says, you know, we're a temple of the Holy Spirit as a church gathering. But then in First Corinthians six nineteen, he says, and your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, meaning per- personally. So that each one of us, if Jesus has come and cleansed us, we're temples of Holy Spirit ourselves. So that we're places. We're, we're we're each one of us, if we're truly trusting in Jesus, we're that point of connection between God and people. So, what does Jesus need to clear out of your heart, of my heart, as he rides into our hearts, the temple of our hearts? What does he see going on? Is there so much commerce, so many different things going on that you can't, you can't be a house of prayer, you can't be a person of worship? Ask Jesus, Jesus, turn these tables over. Jesus, I want this stuff out of my life so that I can worship you in spirit and in truth. Give Jesus full access to your hearts. If he's riding through this place, riding into your hearts, if he was going through each one of these pews, what would he flip over? Maybe it is unforgiveness, we're, we're not forgiving somebody, and that is inhibiting us from worshiping God. Jesus has authority to say, no, forgive that person. Flip that table over. Or maybe it is money, that that's number one in our hearts, is that we don't worship God in our finances. For some reason, that part we kind of hold back to ourselves. Maybe Jesus is coming and flipping that table over, saying that's inhibiting you from worship. Maybe it's religious pride, like the religious authorities had. They're like, this Jesus, who who does he think he is? Who does he think he is to turn over this? Sometimes religious pride, we say, no, Jesus, I do all those things. I check all the boxes here. But he wants to come in and throw that table over because we don't love him with all of our heart. There's so many things now that could be inhibiting our hearts from true worship of Christ. Christ. So what is crowding out your house of worship this morning? What tables does Jesus need to clear out? We ask that as a church body, as a, as a house of worship collectively, but we also must ask that each one of us as individuals. And yes, there's that warning there, but then there's also that promise, that wonderful promise that if we have faith, mountains will be moved. Meaning that, yeah, Jesus, I want you to have my whole heart. I want you to have authority in me because I know and I trust that if I'm following you and and I come to any kind of mountain, anything that I would say, wait, this is really getting in my way. This is huge. This is a huge obstacle. It's not for God. He can take that mountain and fling it away just as he flings the tables away. So, yes, there might be something that you are holding on to this morning and you say, "Uh, you don't understand this, this. Yes, this inhibits my worship, but it is so big and I can't get rid of it myself. Well, Jesus has authority to get rid of it for you. If we will step and open our hearts and say, God, you have all authority. You are number one in my heart. Flip over the tables that need to be flipped over so that I can worship you, that I can have this house of prayer in In myself, but also when we gather. Because that's the promise, right? Yes, there's there's a warning of judgment, the withering of the fig tree. But there's also the promise of amazing things. You see, when Jesus has authority, and when and when we recognize that authority in our lives, even death can't overcome. No sickness, no death, nothing can come in between us and God and what he has for us. So let's press on today. Let's, let's invite Jesus into our hearts, into our church, to be the king and the Messiah that he is. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray for your work in our hearts, in our church, Lord, we want to acknowledge that you have authority to judge and to cleanse your house of worship, but also every worshiper. So, Holy Spirit, we open ourselves up to you now as we sing this last song. We give you full access to our hearts. We give you full access and full authority, Lord, in our church. I mean, you already have it, Lord, but we acknowledge it. And we gratefully acknowledge it. Lord, help us to be in line with your will. Help us to recognize your authority. And Lord, help us to rejoice that in you, when you have full control, mountains can be moved. Structures can be overturned. And your kingdom can be manifest on earth as it is in heaven. We want that, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Move in us. Move through us. Cause us to be closer to you today. We invite you, Lord. Have your way in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.